Well, today we're going to be looking once again to Amos's prophecy to the northern kingdom of Israel. Now, up to this point, you might actually be shocked to hear it, but these, still, these people don't quite understand what their predicament actually is still. Uh, the prophet has unfolded the reality of God's judgment upon them. In the first two chapters, we learn that he is describing Yahweh as this roaring lion. He is devouring the nations one by one until he comes upon his final prey, which is Israel. Then in chapters 3 and 4, which I was able to preach the last time, we saw the prophet describes the people of Israel as this incredibly wayward but ultimately deceived people. They live in wanton rebellion to God, but they ultimately think everything is fine and that they relate to him without any issues. Now, what we're going to see today, we're, we're going to take a look at chapter 5, and I'm going to actually split it up, but we're going to stop at verse 17. What we will see today in this chapter is much the same story. However, he does ramp things up a little bit, and if you were nervous about what that entailed before, buckle up for today. He simply reveals another aspect of their true condition. They are already dead. They're dead. And that's what he tells them first off in the beginning today. And yet they don't even know it. However, in spite of these people being dead, in spite of all of their idolatry and injustice, lawlessness, and everything else, God still shows them an incredibly a credible amount of love and patience and mercy. And what I'm going to argue today is that love is actually revealed through wrath. Now, many of you, I'm sure, hear that and you say, hold on, how in the heck does that work? How is God's love revealed through wrath? Many of you might even be hearing me preach these sermons over and over and over again and thinking that I'm a bit of a buzzkill and that the prophets are a buzzkill. But I would argue, in fact, that everything that they are telling you testifies not only of the judgment that is to come, but it means to escape that judgment, and therefore it is the embodiment of love itself. Now, we're going to see today, I'm going to answer that question for you, how God's love is revealed through wrath. If you'll look with me now, chapter 5, we're going to start right in verses 1 through 2. The prophet writes, Hear the word which I take up for you as a dirge, O house of Israel. She has fallen. She will not rise again. The virgin Israel. She lies neglected on her land. There is none to raise her up. For thus says the Lord God, the city which goes forth a thousand strong will have a hundred left. The one who goes forth a hundred strong will have 10 left to the house of Israel. Now, the first thing I want to bring you to attention to is obviously in verses one through two, God is calling these people to hear this song, but it is ultimately a song that is sung at their own funeral. Now, how's that for love? But also, he calls them to witness their own dead body before them. Uh, he's speaking in the present tense here. So what he's doing is saying that this song of mourning is actually currently happening. Notice who it is for, though. It is for you, O house of Israel. It is not for Judah. It is not for the pagan nations that you hate surrounding you. It is for you. And then see in verse 2, he reveals what that song is. Again, Israel has fallen. She will not rise again. She lies unnoticed in her land, and there is no one to raise her up. Now, that picture being painted is incredibly shocking and graphic, is it not? He is, in essence, telling them, look down upon your own corpse. Israel is depicted as this virgin, meaning she's at the height of her beauty and prominence. She has plenty of opportunity and life left in her, and yet she has fallen fatally. 
More to, the, more to this, though, is that she is utterly forsaken. There is no one that's going to come to help her, no one that's able to raise her from the dead. The northern kingdom, even though the people of Israel will be reunited once again, the northern kingdom itself is dead and will not ever return to glory. Now, the interesting thing is that this nation who's hearing these words would have been at the height of their power, influence, and wealth. They would have been doing fantastic by all measurable standards. However, despite the appearance of this type of life, again, they are dead. Now, what you need to understand about this is that the prophet's not doing this for rhetorical flair, if you will. He's not designing this for rhetorical effect. He's not telling them they're dead because he wants to simply drive the message home. He means that quite literally. Now, God operates outside of time and space. So when he tells them that the judgment will not be called back, that it is certain, that it is already in effect, he's saying that action has already actually been carried out. God's judgment has been rendered in heaven, and they are simply waiting for the effects of that judgment to play out in time and space. Now, we tend to look at the effects of judgment and we say that these are the reasons why any people or nation might fall. We look at the terminal diagnosis, we look at a brutal war, we look at a terrorist attack, or even the effects of nature itself and say, these are the reasons why people die. But at the end of it, we misdiagnose the cause of death itself because scripture shows us that God has both life and death in his hands. It is by the decree of God that any man shall die or any nation shall fall. And death happens the very moment that God has actually ushered that decree. We are simply, again, waiting for the effects to play out in time and space. Now, why that's important is simply for the fact that the world around you this day is dead. This has been the case since Adam and Eve took the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and ate of it. Sin entered the world. It brought God's judgment, which we know as death. Those who are not in Christ may have every appearance of life. And yet, to put it quite brutally, they are the walking dead. And that was you before Christ. Now, all of humanity itself hangs by the slenderest of threads by which death that is decreed for them, will play out in time and space. We are all simply waiting for that moment. And that is a reality that none of us can stop. As bleak as that message may seem, though, it is never divorced from the love of God. Now, the first way we actually see God's love expressed through wrath here today is that God genuinely grieves the death of the wicked or when the wicked must face judgment. This means that the funeral song being sung for Israel here, right away in verse 1 of chapter 5, is not mocking them. God is not mocking these people. He is actually genuinely grieved over the fact that they are dead. He is grieved over the fact that they have suffered the wrath of God, and they will see that play out. Now, we tend to see God's wrath as this completely judicial response devoid of any emotion. And in one sense, it is a judicial response. We know that. You have sinned against the Lord your God, therefore you shall face consequences. But it is also a natural consequence to sin itself. We envision God, again, as this impersonal being who is far above his creation. He's removed from them. He dispassionately destroys them from his throne room. And yet scripture tells us a contrary story. Scripture shows us, again, that God is grieved. He genuinely mourns over the death of the wicked, and especially when he must pour out his wrath. 
Now, we know this, obviously, when we see this here, there is a funeral song being sung, but we know this from other passages as well, like 2 Peter 3.9. The apostle says, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, and here he's referring to that last great day that must be ushered in when all the world will be judged, but he is patient towards you, not willing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance. Again, in Ezekiel 33.11, the Lord says, he does not take pleasure in the death of the wicked but rather that the wicked would turn from his ways and live. Now, we know that God is genuinely grieved over the death of the wicked, over judgment. And yet at the same time, which if you were faithful to your Bible reading, you just saw this in Deuteronomy 28, Moses tells God, or tells the people, I'm sorry, that God will delight over destroying Israel when they are in rebellion. He will delight in taking them out of the promised land. In other words, he is going to delight in wrath. And so the question is, how do we actually reconcile these things? How do I stand up here, especially, and tell you that God both grieves and rejoices in the outpouring of his wrath, and that specifically, these are the embodiment of love itself. It's, in fact, a pure expression of love. I believe we must actually look at these things from two different but complementary viewpoints, if you will. We can see them in perfect harmony, if we view them accordingly to either a a micro or a narrow, if you will, and macro view or a large view. In the micro view or the narrow view, God shows grief. God is genuinely sorrowful when uh, when the wickedness is on full display. Even when the wicked must come to face judgment, he laments the death of Israel. He laments the death of the wicked, not only because he does not want them to die, but wants them to find life instead. But Israel, in fact, are his people. He's given them every avenue of repentance, and yet they still will not turn to him and live. Even now, even now, know that the nation is under the judgment and wrath of God. He has said that they are dead. The message of the prophet is that individual repentance can still be had. And yet the Lord knows that most will not repent, and so he grieves. In a very much the same way today, God is grieved over the death of the wicked. You cannot grieve something you do not love. In the macro view, the wide-angle view, if you will, God shows delight. He not only sees the full picture, but he has ordained the rich tapestry of events from eternity past to eternity future. He sees how these things and has ordained all of these things to culminate and in the person and work of Jesus Christ himself. And so God can, and he does rejoice in punishing the wicked because salvation is only made possible through wrath. And therefore, his maximum glory is tied to salvation. His maximum glory is tied to judgment as well through salvation. He is not only the true and righteous judge of all the earth, he has made a way through salvation to avoid wrath itself, but only by pouring wrath out on Christ. Now, the scriptures tell us the love of God is revealed by him sending this Christ into the world. For what purpose? So that we might live through him. The scriptures tell us Christ bore the wrath of God in our place on the cross. For what purpose? That we might have eternal life. In the same way, God's wrath will be on full display in the last great day but again, for the purpose of redeeming God's people from the three great enemies we know so well, sin, death, and Satan. And so in all of this, God rejoices. 
He rejoices, for though he has grief in the destruction of the wicked, he has ultimate joy in the salvation of sinners and the lifting up of Jesus Christ. Now, why this becomes important is because when we see that wrath is being poured out in the scriptures, we can actually start to see that God is doing this for the purpose of saving his own children. Now, we're going to see this in verse 3 right now. Verses 1 and 2 showed us that God's love actually leads him to grief over the death of the wicked. Verse 3, now again with this wide angle or the macro view, if you will, shows us God's love is seen through wrath in the salvation of his children specifically a remnant here. I'll look down at verse three. Again, he says, thus says the Lord God, the city which goes forth a thousand strong will have a hundred left. And the one which goes forth a hundred strong will have 10 left to the house of Israel. Notice he describes first their downfall. Again, he's simply expounding upon his previous statements in verses one and two. This is a judgment that is already set, but it must play out in time and space. And so we see that happening here, or at least how that will happen to the virgin Israel. A city will send forth a thousand warriors, only 100 will return. A city sends out 100 warriors for battle, but only 10 shall return. In both cases, the prophet is not suggesting they will simply lose a battle and regroup. He is simply saying that they are going to be slaughtered or devastated, if you will. There will be no men to send back out into battle. They simply won't even have enough men to lodge defenses against those coming. As a result, the only available outcome, and I do mean the only available outcome for them, is to fall. The kingdom must fall. There is no hope for national survival for Israel. No hope for national salvation. What I mean by that is they they will not avoid the judgment that will come through the Assyrians. And yet at the same time, God promises right here in this text, he will preserve a remnant out of that nation who will be spared. Despite the overwhelming judgment to befall this kingdom, God still mercifully provides the people with a means of God's unfailing covenant love that he will spare some. And yet this remnant could not be made of a whole nation. That much should be clear. A remnant is always going to be a part of something, right? It implies only a small portion will remain. But ultimately, I want you to notice that God demonstrates his love simply by establishing this remnant. And it can only be established through wrath. God's covenant love, that is his faithfulness to Abraham and his children, is on display because he loves his children enough to discipline them. He will not leave them in the condition they are in. He will not leave them to pursue every hotbed of idolatry and licentiousness or every perversion known to man. They must be a holy people. They must not whore after false gods. And so he says, I shall cleanse you and discipline you. He will root out their wickedness and idolatry. And one of the ways he does this, which you have seen this already, and you will see continue to play out before you as you read your Old Testament, is that he will kill off an unregenerate nation or an unrepentant people. In all of it, he is driven by this unfailing covenant love to preserve his genuine children, that he will continue to bless Abraham's offspring, that is, those who are genuinely Israel. Even though some will be preserved, these people will still go into slavery and exile. They're going to be forced, in other words, to seek God above any and all other false forms of worship that they have contrived and fallen into. Now, as painful and terrifying as that might be for them, and think about it, put yourself in their shoes. 
they still get to live. They still get to be spared. God's love still shines through, namely because he doesn't owe them a thing. In other words, what you are seeing here with the prominence of this people being established and preserved is the purest form of mercy you can get because they have done everything to not deserve it. They have done everything to fall into the judgment of God, and he still looks down and says, I will preserve a small portion to be faithful to my covenant. God has told them that though they are dead, though they lie forsaken as a nation, though no man may raise them up again, that he will resurrect a portion so they may live. And so how does he do that? Well, he tells them specifically how that must happen, verses 4 through 15. This is how they must avoid judgment. It's the third way God shows love through wrath. He provides a means of life and salvation. And God tells them, verse 4, look down. The only way they can be counted among the remnant to be saved is they must seek God and live. Now, I want to provide a little bit of clarification here. There is a twofold command given in the text here. They must seek God. The second, they must live. If you're using the NASB or the King James Version, the way they translate this is not entirely helpful because they tend to translate it not as two commands, but as a result, that if they seek God, they will live. Now, he does that later in the text, but here it is actually two commands. They must seek God. They must live. In other words, these commands are one in the same because God himself is life. God is ultimately calling them back to covenant faithfulness. In other words, he is simply calling them to repentance. Now, if you put it in the most basic of terms, he is calling them back to the very foundations of the covenant. He's alluding to the great commandment. They, they are to love the Lord their God with all their heart, mind, and soul. They are to love their neighbor. This is the second great commandment as themselves. They are with the very fullness of their being to orient all of life and their purpose and the way they treat their neighbor to the ultimate glory of God himself. Now, when he calls them to live, again, this is not showing result of seeking God, but rather another command that's in addition to seeking God. It is to honor and obey God through his word. Now, we find this exact same thought process all throughout Psalm 119. It's the longest psalm. Over and again, it speaks to the fact that the word of God and God's commandments are a very source of life itself to the people of God. So when Amos calls them to seek God and he calls them to live, he is calling them to order their lives around God and his commandments. It truly is that simple. They must actually submit themselves to his word. The outcome, if they don't, is that they will be consumed in wrath. And God is warning them of the judgment to come. And then he says, the consequence of your rebellion is this. Now, this informs how we read the rest of this section here up until verse 15. Look with me now at verse 5. God commands them. He says, do not resort to Bethel. Do not come to Gilgal, nor cross over to Beersheba. For Gilgal will certainly go into captivity, and Bethel will come to trouble. Again, seek the Lord that you may live. God commands them, forsake these popular landmarks because they are not only a haven for idolatry, but they will be destroyed and consumed in my judgment. Again, these were places that important historical events happened, uh, events that they would tie back their lineage to the patriarch Abraham, where God 
gave them great blessings, and so they would go on a pilgrimage to these places simply for the reason that they believed that by doing so they were seeking God. At Bethel, we know this from Genesis, Jacob dreams of the ladder. We call it Jacob's ladder. It stretches from earth to heaven. But ultimately, the important thing in this section of the narrative is that he reveals himself to Jacob. He reiterates the covenant promises to him that the Lord is going to give them a land, that he's going to greatly multiply his offspring, and that through all, uh, that all the nations of the earth would be blessed through them. Gilgal is a memorial to God's faithfulness because he delivered the promised land to them itself. At Gilgal, God dries up the Jordan River so they could cross it just as he did the Red Sea. And all of this is a sign, again, that he would drive out their enemies from the land. God is going to make good on his promise to Abraham. Beersheba is also a place where God reiterates the covenant promises to Isaac. Here God swears to Isaac he is going to make good on this promise once again. He's going to establish this people as his people, and he will cause his offspring to multiply. And so every single way, these people are looking at these landmarks as a means in which they can tie it back to their lineage. God has surely blessed us. He has made good on his promises. We are God's children. They built altars at these places to worship the Lord. And yet, as we saw in Amos chapter 3 and again in chapter 4, they turned these places into idolatrous centers for worship, but also vain worship. In other words, they offered empty sacrifices to their heart's content, all the while not having a love for their God. What that means is that these locations became a substitute for God himself rather than God. In other words, they sought this location. They believed they were seeking God through it and by it, and yet they did not seek God. Again, we saw this clear with, clearly with their actions. They loved to bring sacrifices. They loved to bring their offerings and to tithe, and yet their hearts were far from God. They delighted in tearing apart their own people. They delighted in worshiping in false gods. They found, they found every sort of injustice to practice. They were good at inventing evil. They were an extremely religious people, though, too. But they were not a people who loved God. Ultimately, they bore the same telltale marks of an unfaithful generation before them who trusted in false gods, who walked in darkness, who did not walk with Yahweh. And so the command to them again, do not go to these places of false worship. They will be destroyed, and if you go to them, you will be destroyed with them. Your false gods are powerless to save you. So God says, forsake your false gods, seek me and live. Now in this, this is perhaps where I might offer a stern warning for the church in general. We can ascribe a great deal of significance to all sorts of churchy things, right, without actually having a genuine love of God himself. We can seek after any number of things. We can believe they even bring us closer to God. And yet all the while, we can be found guilty of never seeking God himself. We can have our own private rituals and liturgies. We can have our own traditions. But if we are not seeking God, it is all in vain. You can do any number of things that a Christian should do. You can read your Bible, you can come to church, you can pray, you can serve. And yet if you are not seeking God, 
if you are not doing those things to honor God, if your heart is divided, if you love things that are not Christ, if you seek trust in things that are not Christ alone, all these things do is become a substitute for seeking God himself. I think of the lifelong quote-unquote Christian who never comes to repentance and faith. In the same breath, you can place your affections in any number of things as well. I think how easy it is to turn from God and seek fulfillment or joy in something that is not God himself. He is the very source of all good gifts. The question becomes, do we rejoice in the gift or we rejoice in the gift giver? We need not bow down before a graven image to be guilty of idolatry. You only need to look upon it as if it will deliver the fulfillment or fulfillment and joy and purpose that God alone can give. So he commands Israelites, because this is essentially what they are guilty of doing, seek God, seek me and live. Order every bit of your life in faithfulness to the one true God, to his commandments, And this is what he calls them to again in verses 6 and 7. I want you to look down with me once again. Again, he says, Seek the Lord that you may live, or he will break forth like a fire, O house of Joseph, and it will consume with none to quench it for Bethel. For those who turn justice into wormwood and cast righteousness down to the earth. Now this time, these double commandments are seen in light of God's sure judgment on Israel. Again, the natural consequence to their disobedience is the outpouring of God's wrath. This section is really quite simple, so I'm not going to spend much time here, but the idea is that if they fail to seek God and live, the natural result and the judicial result is that they will be consumed in wrath. Now, as we get to verse 7, we see these are set in light of relational and ethical implications, if you will. Now, all he's doing, all he's describing here is that they have ultimately perverted the way of true justice. They have despised righteousness. They have turned justice from a sweet thing into a bitter thing. Now, this is further described, again, by them throwing righteousness down to the earth and trampling on it itself. Ultimately, what it means is that in every conceivable way, they've despised everything that is good, everything that is sweet. But this context is in the court system of Israel. Now, we're going to see that shortly as we get to verses 10 through 13. For now, I want you to turn your attention to 8 and 9, simply because the prophet interrupts this uh, flow, if you will, with praise. But he does so for a particular purpose. He's grounding God's judgment in God's sovereign right over all creation, but particularly in the fact that he is the one true God. He is the one who has revealed himself to Abraham. He is the one who made covenant with Abraham. He is the I am. The God, essentially, who made the billions of galaxies who, that contain an untold number of stars that he alone keeps record of, that he alone knows by name, the God who brings the sun to rise and puts away the darkness, the God who calls forth the waters, he sends them to do his bidding, Yahweh is his name. He is the great I am. In one sentence, he testifies to his divine right to judge, but more importantly, that he is the only way to salvation. Now, the name itself is incredibly significant to the Israelite. They would have no doubt about what's being said here. 
It testifies to the fact that God has no beginning. He has no end. He is not dependent on anything. He is utterly self-sufficient. He does not dwell in houses made by human hands. He is absolute reality itself. Nothing in creation exists without him causing it to be, but also sustaining it by the sheer might of his word. He looks upon all aspects of creation and declares them mine. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is ultimately unchanging. He is the ultimate standard for goodness, truth, and beauty in and of himself, and he has revealed this to them. He does whatever he pleases, and all that he does is good at every single moment in what he does. So he alone is worthy. There is none like him. This is Yahweh. This is the name of God who revealed himself to Israel, who is forever loyal to his word and promise and his covenant, even when they are not. The idea is that because God is the great I am, that not only is he the one that created everything, not only is he the one who has the intrinsic right to judge, he is the only name through which salvation can be found. Though the nations, and now even the Israelites, are ascribing or attributing all of these things to the pagan deities, Yahweh simply responds, I am. Therefore, the I am is the one who can save. But also, the I am is the one who has the right to judge. And this is what he tells them in verse 9. It is he... It is Yahweh and Yahweh alone. It is the I am who makes destruction flash like the mighty or like lightning from heaven upon the mighty. It is Yahweh alone who strikes and brings destruction upon the fortresses. In all of this, the prophet is simply testifying to the very fact that if God has the right and power to create, he has the right and power to destroy. Therefore, repent. This is the God that they have offended. This is the God they have made war with. He says, seek me and live. Now notice in verses 10 through 13, Amos returns back to these implications, the ethical and relational abuses of their fellow people. This continuation of verse 7, as I said, they perverted justice. They made a sweet thing bitter. They despised righteousness. Notice he says, they hate him who rebuke in the gate, they despise him who speaks with integrity. Verse 10. Again, this is set in the context of the courts. What this means is they despised judges who were not corrupt. They despised witnesses who were upright, who defended the truth. They wanted those who would tell lies. What they desired instead of judges were people who would pardon the wicked and punish the righteous. They wanted witnesses who would only benefit them in the courts. And so they wanted false witnesses, which are explicitly condemned by the law. And so what that means is that ultimately the testimony of the righteous and the truth itself is silenced. Then in verse 11, we find again, they trample just like they did upon righteousness, upon the poor. And then what else do they do? They force them to pay tributes of grain. But notice he says they will not enjoy their ill-gotten goods for very long. It's a futility curse. Though they would build houses of stone from extorting the poor, they would not live in them. Though they would plant beautiful vineyards from stolen land, they would not even drink of the wine. 
In everything, the prophet is simply unfolding the inevitable result of their evil. He says, you do this, this is the result. Cause and effect, just like before. Their greed is going to be matched in God's judgment simply to show the futility of their ways. Others are going to come in. Others are going to leave in their houses. Others will drink their wine. Others will make merriment, but they will suffer none of it. And this curse would not be lifted until the day they return to covenant faithfulness and God restores them as his people. Then in verses 12 through 13, he actually just takes this and summarizes this. The prophet writes, For I know your transgressions are many and your sins are great. You who distress the righteous and accept bribes and turn aside the poor and the gate. Now, God is depicting all of this as it's a continual reaction or action. Everything they do is characterized by this. There's not a moment in which they actually don't extort the poor. They continually harass and attack the righteous, and the reason why they do it is because they hate the righteous. They accept bribes, and the reason they do this, again, is because they hate the poor. They hate justice. They hate righteousness. Now, what this likely refers to itself is that they bribed judges. They would pay them a price to either set the guilty free or change the outcome of the courts. It meant that the only people who would get punished were the ones who didn't have enough money to pay off and bribe. And yet their perversion of justice goes even deeper than this. They turned away the poor at the gates. And what that means is that it was impossible for them to even come to the courts themselves. They could not get representation. They could not find justice. They had no sense of fair treatment. Again, those who had the money were the ones who were heard. Those who had the money were the ones who got off free. In all of this, in light of it, he simply says, therefore, at such a time, The wise person, the prudent person, keeps quiet. Why? Because it is an evil time. The point he is making here is that the efforts of the wise man, the faithful, the righteous, the ones who love truth, will come to no effect. They might speak, right? They could do so. But the only outcome is a perversion of justice and likely their own downfall. They could stand for the oppressed, the poor, or the ones who are being mistreated, the righteous, but they are likely to get crushed into the dirt just like justice and righteousness itself. And so the best option for them is to simply look the other way and avoid all trouble. This is not even right. The people should be one characterized by a love and justice and righteousness so much so that they would even die for their fellow Israelites. And the reason for that is because God himself is just and righteous in all his ways. What I want you to notice, though, is that this is the result of a people who have spurned God and his commandments. When you hate God, when you hate what he declares is good, when you hate his commandments, you refuse to order your life to him, the inevitable result is that you will spurn righteousness and justice itself. But the natural result is that God's wrath will also abide on you. Now, why do I say that this is a manifestation of God's love? Because it produces one of two outcomes, beloved. It will either spur repentance and faith and life, or final justice will be had. 
In other words, justice and righteousness will still go forth because God is the God of justice. And even though it is perverted in the here and now, God gets the final word. But what does he do here? He doesn't just simply say, I'm going to wipe you all out. He says, seek me and live. He's looking at the guilty and even saying that there is another summons for you to repent. If you can seek me and live, I will not be your prosecutor. I will be your defender. And this is what we see now in verses 14 and 15. Now here, the translation is actually rendered a bit more accurately than I said it was earlier. It is saying that seeking good may in fact result in life. The northern kingdom is still going to be utterly destroyed. They're still going to be undone, if you will. And yet individual repentance might be had. But God is not merely calling them to lip service. He's not calling them to a simple repentance and faith, but a repentance and faith that actually produces such an effect that goodness itself prevails over evil. It is not merely that some people will do good, but that they will all turn and face God and love him and live in light of his commandments. Again, it's a fairly straightforward statement, especially in light of what we know of these people. Very simply, he is saying, you must change complete direction. You must change course. You must order your life around myself and my commandments. In other words, you must please God. You must return to covenant faithfulness. The result, of course, if you look down, is that God says he will actually be with them. Thus may the Lord God of hosts be with you, just as you have said. They professed that God was among them. They said that while they practice idolatry, injustice, and lawlessness, God is among us. God will not punish us. God loves us. They comforted one another with these words. And yet the obvious reality was that God was not found among them at all. However, all of that could change. They could genuinely take comfort in that reality, but only if they would seek him and live. Notice again that God is referred to here as the Lord God of armies. Again, he's alluding to this fact that he is the God who controls the heavens and the earth. He is the one who has the whole host of heavenly armies and earthly armies at his disposal. He says, this God, this God will not be at war with you. This God will be for you rather than against you if you repent. Then in verse 15, we see another set of commands attached to, again, this highly conditional result. Hate evil, love good, establish justice in the gate. Perhaps the Lord God of hosts may be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. Perhaps. He says, you must be a people characterized by the love of God. You must be a people characterized by the love of his commandments. This must play out in how you treat your neighbor. No longer can you follow after false gods or use your positions of authority to oppress the poor and abuse the righteous. No longer can you live without any reference to your creator and his commandments. You must repent in earnest. You must demonstrate you truly love your God and your brethren. And yet you must do this all by faith. You must cast yourselves upon the mercy of God because he has said there is judgment and that if you repent, perhaps... He will be merciful to you. 
How's that for assurance? That's a big fat maybe. It's a technical word, if you will. They could repent and turn back to God. And what he's saying here is that he would still have every single right to destroy them in their place because of the wickedness that they have known and sown for years. He would have every single right to let them reap the consequences of what they have spent a lifetime and generations at this point building for themselves. But there's a chance. Wrath will still come. Israel is dead. And yet perhaps, perhaps if you seek him, if you live by his commandments, if you love good, if you establish justice in the gate, meaning you just simply repent of all your evil, perhaps you might just live that he will include you in that remnant. In all of this, God is demonstrating an exceedingly great love. Even in the midst of this promise to judge, even in the midst of the promise to destroy them, he is showing love. Now, wrath and love meet, if you didn't know it, in what's called mercy. That is giving them what they do not deserve, which in this case is simply another chance. God commands them, seek him and live. Seek good that you may live. He gives these further three commands and he attaches them all to the very real potential for forgiveness and grace. And so what does that show us of God himself? That he actually does not want to pour out his wrath on them. He is giving them every single opportunity to repent because his earnest desire is not that they would perish, but that they would live, that they would find eternal life. He grieves their condition. He promises that he's going to establish a remnant. He's not going to destroy them down to the last man. And perhaps they can be spared and be found to be among this remnant if they repent. And yet the, God, or the call that God makes to them is they will have nothing but him. All the obstacles of genuine worship of God himself will be removed. The altars will be thrown down. Their houses will be thrown down. Their vineyards will be taken away. The land itself will be stripped from them, but they will have God. They will go into exile. They will experience slavery and hardship, but they will have God. They will be removed from their positions of wealth and influence. It is through fiery judgment but they shall have them or have him as their savior. And he is enough. He says that if you seek me, you will live. God is the source of life himself. He says if they seek him, they might just live. And this is why I say the ultimate sense of God's love is displayed through wrath because it reveals that everything can be stripped away from you. But if you have God, you have life. The promise of life for Israel is not attached to the land. It was not attached to the physical blessings, their wealth, their comfort, their ease. It was not attached to their freedom. The promise of life was attached to God himself. And that is enough. And that leads me to ask you, do you believe that? Do you believe that if everything that you loved went away today, That if God took your wife, he took your children, he took your job, your house, your possessions, every single thing that you have, and left you nothing but himself, would that be enough? 
Would you still praise him? Would you say as Job did, blessed be the name of the Lord, though he giveth and though he taketh? Would you find him worthy or do you follow God simply for the things that he gives you? Again, I ask, have you replaced seeking the things of God for God himself? It's the ultimate question we must ask ourselves, and we even have to ask it in light of eternity. I listened to a radio program years back, and I can't remember who exactly said it, but the question was raised by them. If you could have everything in heaven, streets of gold, no sin, no death, no Satan, everything, and yet not have Christ, would you still want it? And then you know what he said? He said, if you say yes to that question, you will have neither. Now, the outpouring of the love of God as it is manifest in the wrath of God ensures that we seek God for himself. We do not seek him for his gifts. We do not seek him for the blessings he bestows upon us. But ultimately, we seek him and him alone because he alone is worthy. And we turn now to the final demonstration of love seen in wrath, verses 16 through 17. God warns them of the judgment from God will actually really be like. He tells them God will visit them. Indeed, God will be with them, but his presence will not produce joy. Oh, no. It will not produce joy in the unrepentant. It will only produce an untold misery. He says, therefore, that is in light of the fact that Israel has died and fallen by the judgment of God, This is what the sovereign Lord of the armies of heaven and earth says will come for them if they fail to seek him and live. There's mourning in all the public squares and in all the streets. They say, oh no, oh no. They also call the farmer to mourning and the professional mourners to mourning rites. And in all the vineyards, there is mourning. Now notice Amos returns to lament just as he began. This time, though, it is not Yahweh who grieves. It is Israel. Everyone from the greatest to the least would be in abject terror in the streets on the account of the judgment of God at hand by the sheer weight of his awesome presence. Reality as they even knew it would come crashing down and they would feel nothing but utter dread. Now the Hebrew exclamation that they translate as oh no here is not even really a word. This is what I want. It's the sound of the breath escaping your lips when you try to form a word, but you can't. The wind is knocked out of you, so all you have left is just this, uh, the sheer weight of your fear. Then he depicts this great wailing by the people, from the farmer to the professional mourner to the vineyards, all filled with the sound of people grieving. Professional mourners, if you didn't know it, these were paid people that would show up at funerals. They would really know how to make a proper scene for the dead, right? We in America, we make everything all cutesy. We still put on a pretty face for the dead. We don't actually treat it in the regard that it should. But in other cultures, you still have these people around. Now, they, they will just make a grand scene where they do their best to wail at the top of their lungs. They'll flail around. And all of it is designed to simply show how ugly the reality of death is. the professional mourners would not be able to wail loudly enough to do it justice. When Israel fell dead in the streets, they couldn't do the job. Even the farmer has to come out of his field and wail. 
Even the vineyards, a place where you're going to go to drink wine and make merriment, is going to be turned into a place of mourning or a funeral parlor, if you will. And why? Down at verse 17. Because I will pass through the midst of you, says Yahweh. I will pass through your midst. The language is so reminiscent of the final plague poured out on the Egyptians that it's not even funny. You remember, God passes through the Egyptians. He kills the firstborn child. He kills every firstborn animal as well in judgment. He says, I'm going to do the same with you, Israel. Except it's not just the firstborn. It's harsher. His angel of death is going to deal retribution to the whole of the northern kingdom. Remember? 1,000 go forth, 100 return. 100 go forth, 10 return. Your houses of worship, your shrines, your altars, everything is going to be destroyed and stolen from you. Men, women, children, and livestock will be dead or taken into captivity. In all of it, what he's showing them is that when I come, though you see it as a day of great rejoicing, it will be to you a day of mourning and weeping. It will be a time for grief. On the day of God's visitation for them, it will be too late for repentance. They must seek him that day and live. They cannot wait. They cannot exhaust his patience, graciousness, and mercy, or they will drink the cup of wrath to the dregs. The wailers will scream at the top of their lungs for all the dead, and it still will not be an appropriate show of grief. And the reason for this is ultimately quite simple. It's not just about the dead bodies strewn about everywhere. It's not just about the destruction of Israel. The consequences to their rebellion is eternal death. No amount of earthly wailing can sufficiently express the grief that is attached to that. But even here, God's love is on display. He says, these are the judicial and the natural consequences to your idolatry, to your lawlessness, to your injustice. It's not merely destruction. It's eternal death. Seek me and live. He's calling them once again to seek him and live rather than be judged to eternity in hell, to an eternity of only ever continually seeing what it looks like to fall into the hands of the living God. In other words, he is giving them the ultimate warning of what is to come. In the last two verses, we catch a small glimpse of what hell will be like. We tend to think of hell as the absence of God. We think a person's everlasting agony is because they cannot be with God. They will be unable to even see him. The reality is, is that hell is not the absence of God, but eternal death and estrangement from God himself. The difference is subtle here, but it's important because it means that God will be very much present, but he is not a source of joy and life to them. He is only and ever a source of agony and death. He will not turn their agony into joy. He will not turn their tears and mourning into praise like he promises for the child of God. He will, in fact, do just the opposite because they will live with a conscious awareness of every moment they had in this waking life to turn and seek him and live. Their joy will be turned to agony because it will be yet another thing that testifies to the fact that there was a creator that 
that they did not delight in him, but they delighted in the gift. Their praise shall be turned to weeping because it will stand as a testament to their false gods. No, hell is a place where God's presence is very much felt, but it will produce untold misery and anguish because those in hell know for all eternity that they will never have a chance at life again. And so you ask, what is loving about that? What is loving about sending people to hell where God himself is simply going to punish them for an eternity? Well, for one, you have a warning. God has given a clear warning to all of humanity that Christ will return and it will not be sunshine and butterflies. It will be wrath like the world has never seen. And so in light of that day, God commands you, seek him and you shall live. Again, you don't get that kind of a warning without love. For two, everyone under the wrath of God deserves it. They deserve it. No one will go there who does not deserve it. They will not be there by mistake. God is ultimately fair and he is just in his retribution. He is the impartial judge of all the earth. Nothing escapes his gaze. You don't get true and lasting justice without love. People may skirt around God's justice by, again, abusing the poor, mocking and reviling the faithful, silencing the righteous and and concealing truth, or doing an untold number of evil things that Scripture simply condemns. But final justice will not be escaped. In the end, the bad guy gets what they deserve. The problem with that is that according to Scripture, everyone's a bad guy. Much like the lifeless corpse of Israel who will not rise again due to God's judgment, all the earth is dead. If you are not in Christ this day, that means in your natural state that you are dead. We are dead in our trespasses and sins. But just like Israel, God bids that you come and live. We find two of the greatest words in all of Scripture. But God, but God, he has provided you and I with a means of salvation. And this salvation does not bypass justice. It does not bypass judgment and wrath. In fact, it completely and utterly satisfies those things in Christ. And Christ is ultimately where wrath and love are unified and portrayed in the most beautiful of ways. And so it is in light of all of that that I just simply ask you the question, do you see God's love in wrath? Because if you are a Christian, you must. You must see the beauty of God's love and wrath because Christ is the one who has taken your punishment on your behalf and he has given you life. Do you not see that, in fact, he still even grieves over the death of the wicked and the punishment of the wicked? He does not delight in the fact that sinners are on the wide road to destruction, but in all of his grief, he produced a love so great that he sent his one and only son into the world so that through him they may have life. Do you see now that even in all of your sin, that God still loves you in Christ if you are his child? The God who made the heavens and the earth, who sustains them by his word, the God who revealed himself to Israel and now to the church through Christ, the unchanging, ever faithful, loyal, and benevolent God who calls himself I am. This is the God that commands all of us to seek him and live. He warns us of the day to come. 
Not one person in this room will be unaware of that day. He warns us that there will be a grief, a mourning, a wailing so severe that even if all the world would take up the song at their own funeral, it would not produce justice for it. And yet God testifies of a most wonderful work where the funeral of another took place so that you might live. This is the God who sent Christ in human flesh to live a perfect life of obedience to the Father's will. This is the Christ, the God-man who died on the cross to take your sins upon himself. And he took the cup of our wrath. He drank it in full. He did it in his good pleasure. He took our hell. And yet he did not stay dead, but he rose on the third day just as he said he would. He secured our redemption. He secured our life. Do you see how wrath and love must meet? That they must meet. Do you see the finger of God, if you will, touching down on creation in that most excellent moment in all of time and space where wrath and love are satisfied in Christ as he satisfied and did these things to the good pleasure of the Father, that he defeated sin, death, and Satan and so enveloped his children in his love that he looks upon them and calls them mine. If this is your confession and your hope, beloved, you have life. If this is not, you must seek him and live. The only alternative is death. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you that you have made a way for us in Christ, that though we may look upon the bleakness of your prophets, there are hard words that they give us each and every time we open to read and to listen, that ultimately they testify the one who came and bore our place on the cross. Thank you for your faithfulness, even in spite of our own unfaithfulness, that we are those who are desperately in need of grace. We are sinners who often find our hearts prone to wander, even now, even as we are your children. And yet you shine your face upon us and you call us your children and you show us a love that is so deep and confusing at times that we just don't even know what to do with it. But you, Father, are glorified in all of it. We know that it took wrath upon Christ to give us this privilege. We know that you are coming one day to show wrath again. And on that day, it will be too late that those who are not found safe in Christ will be consumed in your wrath. But I pray that this day you would continue to prepare their hearts and minds and work by your spirit to give them life. May they not go home with an ease of conscience. May they not go home thinking that this week is enough time to repent or this month or this year, that you would strike conviction in their hearts to know that if they seek you this day, that you will revive their hearts and bring the dead to life. We thank you for your most excellent salvation. None of us are worthy, but you are always and ultimately worthy. It is in the matchless name of Jesus Christ we pray. Amen.